Welcome to another episode of Inclusive Conversations. You're probably thinking that I am not your normal host, and you would be right. My name's Joe York. You might recognize my voice from the third episode of the podcast, the one about money where I was the guest, or more recently, the seventh episode where I was hosting and interviewing Jen Serdechny about tech. But I am friends and colleagues with your normal hosts, Tanya and Zoya, and today we're flipping things around. Instead of Zoya playing the role of host, we're going to do the thing that she will probably hate most, put her in the spotlight, and make her the guest. To introduce Zoya, of the four of us at Manifold, the little design project that's producing inclusive conversations, I would say Zoya is the most complex, and I mean that as a compliment. Imagine that you're sitting at a table with the four of us, me and Zoya, Tanya, and Nahin, who you have not met yet, and we're playing a game of poker. Tanya and Nahin would probably turn around immediately and show you all their cards, and in no time they'd uh, have you talking and distracted and you'd be laughing and you'd probably forget that you're playing cards at all. I, on the other hand, would probably initially take things way too seriously. I'd be competitive. Before long, though, I would get insecure that Tanya and Nahin were being more fun than I was, and I would uh, be afraid people thought I was boring. Um, And so then I'd try and pretend to be more fun, all the while overanalyzing things in my own head. And then Zoya would be the one who would keep her cards close. She'd be the smart one. She'd probably eventually win. If you stuck around long enough, you'd probably realize realize that she's um, super smart, but also soulful. And during the episode, you'll hear me describe her as a little mysterious. Um, but eventually, that fades, in my experience, and you see somebody who is thinking and feeling very, very deeply. She comes from Barbados originally, and that's the focus of her graduate research, which she calls Contexture which you can find online at our website, hellomanifold.com, or thisiscontexture.com. In the research, she is painting a picture of a decolonialized Caribbean future pursued through the nurturing of their own unique brand of creativity. And uh, she set the research up in three parts. Today, we'll talk about just one of them called For the Future, which examines the formation of decolonialized identity through visual art specifically. So uh, in terms of my personal objectives for our conversation, just to be transparent, I've got two. One, obviously I'd like to understand more about Zoya's research. There are some beautiful, really nuanced ideas in there that uh, obviously deserve more discussion and thought. But secondly, and... Uh, more importantly to me, personally at least, I would like to use this conversation as an excuse to covertly uncover stories about what makes Zoya tick. As I said, she's kind of mysterious, akin to an onion with a bunch of secret layers, a layer cake, pick your metaphor. So um, I hope you enjoy this conversation where I will hopefully do some peeling. It's happening. (laughs) stop it (laughs) don't tease me are you nervous about speaking publicly in a way that's going to be durable such that if you say something that ultimately disqualifies you from being prime minister of Barbados that (laughs) 10 years from now someone's going to dig this up and be like no she can't she can't um she can't be the head of the UN because she said this in an interview (laughs) with 
Joe York in 2021? Okay, well, firstly, um, I would never be the prime minister of anything. I don't think I have. That sounds like a self-limiting belief. Okay, sure. I don't think I have, like, um, the stomach for politics. <laughs> That's probably true. Me either. Like, it just but seems... Stomachs can evolve. <laughs> That's true. But head of the UN, that's interesting. <laughs> You're interested? Okay. <laughs> All right. interesting. All right, well, let's position this interview as part of the foundation of your future candidacy for head of the UN. Okay, that's a bit much, but sure. <laughs> you know what I'd like to know? I'd like to know what did you get from reading the essay, my case study on decolonizing identity okay. for the future, for the Caribbean future. Now who's being mischievous, taking over? I just, want, I just want to know. Um, I thought it was fascinating. Um, I've been reading this book that's about, uh, it's, it's like a, it's a book about religion, but it was basically about how, um, like the way that um, people in Africa were divorced from their land, um, shaped their shaped the uh, identity formation processes and the impact that that has on my religion specifically. And so when I was reading that and then reading your writing about, um, you know, what, what is the legacy of colonialism uh, in what it means to be um, somebody from the Caribbean now, it, it felt kind of like a continuation of the same discussion. Um, so it was, it was definitely thought-provoking, uh, illuminating. And I especially liked the, I've also, I had a friend who was, he did a, a consulting project um, last year that was about technology um, and healthy relationship with technology. And one of his findings was that the creative process is a kind of like a restorative mechanism for uh, normalizing our relationship with technology and giving us tools to, to form identities um, amidst, you know, all the ways that technology makes us uh, crazy. And so when you were looking at the ways that visual, uh, you know, contemporary visual art specifically offers this path forward to decolonialized identity, I, I, it made sense to me. It, um, it kind of aligned with that same line of thinking. So I, I definitely believed you. That's nice to hear because sometimes I'm still questioning myself. <laughs> like it makes, I, I think it makes sense. And then I'm like, does it, does it make sense? Does it make sense to anybody else? I don't yeah. know. How, so let's now, let me take back the reins of my own interview. What, what did, how did this all start? Like, I, I remember, I remember early in school, um, our, for anybody that's listening to this in the future, our program was pretty remote friendly. I was doing it from San Francisco. You were in Toronto on campus at OCAD meeting in person, but I was just seeing you on screen, seeing, um, our other classmates on screen. And I remember we had an early breakout um, session or something where you and me and Tanya and Nahin, the folks that now make up Manifold, were all in a small group. And 
at that point you were thinking that you would research and study uh, handwriting and cursive and the role that that plays in um, education and, you know, what's the cost associated with taking that away from what kids learn in school now. And now we're talking about Caribbean identity, decolonialization, uh, how creative practice fits into that. What was the, the journey between those two? So when I started out looking at cursive handwriting, it was never really what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out what I was trying, what I, what was calling me, what was pulling me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in giving examples of what, of, in trying to explain to the professors and so forth, the, the whole context of the Caribbean and how it operates and in trying to give an example of the lack of creativity and that came out is in, in one of our conversations and then it just kind of spawned into its own thing. And then I did end up presenting it as what I was going to do, not because I intended ever to do it. What happened was, I don't know if you remember the timeline, but do you remember we were like, working with advisors on what we would potentially do and so forth. And then it was like, end of semester, you have to present. (laughs) And I was like, oh shit, I have to present. (laughs) And I went to Nancy, my advisor, and I was like, Nancy, I have to present. I don't know what I'm doing. And she was like, let's do this. You're going to present this cursive handwriting thing. It sounds interesting. This is your research plan. Go forth get your grade and we'll figure it out later. Mm. So that's actually uh, what happened there. But there was something in that that was calling me. Mm. I think what it is in hindsight was handwriting to me because I'm trained as a graphic designer is just a form of like it's calligraphy, it's typography. So that connects in my mind as something creative that's sort of disintegrating in a wider context. Mm-hmm. But that in itself wasn't it. I was lacking theory at the point mm-hmm. to get to where I needed to get to. And then eventually I got there when I read Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Then everything just sort of fell in place. And I was like, I know exactly what I need to do. And I had no intentions of doing anything surrounding uh, colonialism, decolonization, the Caribbean, nothing. I thought it was just education. I didn't realize it was within that context. But mm. the things that we resist are sometimes the things we need to do the most. So. Mm. Wise words. I remember, I mean, I, I think I had a similar, I think most of the people in our program had similar journeys with their topics where they thought it should be one thing at the beginning and you start peeling back layers, peeling back layers, and you get to something that's truer at the core. Um, and Pedagogy of the Oppressed is something that I've picked up to read like seven different times. And I think I'm still 50 pages in and I still haven't finished it. It's a hard read. There's a lot of good stuff in those it's first. It's really pages. good, <laughs> but it's a hard read. Like I need to read it. I can say I read it like in, I, I don't know, a week, couple of weeks, something because I had to, mm-hmm. but I didn't grasp everything in it. Mm-hmm. It like, there were parts that just kind of went over my head and I was like, yep, I'm going to come back to that later. And I just had to keep going because I was on a time crunch, but 
Yeah. Also, the way it was written, I think it's like 70 years old. So, mm. yeah. Um, one other kind of question on background. You're, I know you're from Barbados. You're Barbadian. What, I guess, what would you say, um, and maybe you could place this back, you know, where you were at two years ago when you were coming up with what you wanted to research, or you could talk about it in the present tense, but what is being... Barbadian mean to you? Oh, wow. That's a good question. What does being Barbadian mean to me? Oh, I, I don't know that I can answer that right now. Yeah. That's I mean, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm on the journey to discover what that, the answer to that question, to be very honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I am proud to be where I'm from, but I'm discover I'm on the journey to discover what it means to be Barbadian, actually. I think, I think, and you might get this from my essay, that the answer to that is in um is in the leaving of home and positioning yourself um in different parts of the world mm-hmm. to be mirrored mm-hmm. and to uncover those parts. I don't think that you can I'm not sure, maybe you can, but I am not sure that anyone, regardless of their nationality, can fully know what it is to be um, where they're from until they leave where they're from. Mm. That's well said. In your, in your comments, uh, when you're talking about the, um, you know, the, the genesis of your research and starting with... Um, not not really starting but i mean at one point feeling like you needed to talk about the cursive thing for the sake of completing course requirements and then evolving into this place where um you landed um that creativity was part of what you were exploring you know what was what the role of creativity um was in terms of um reimagining uh, a new decolonialized version of what it means to be Caribbean or West Indian or Barbadian? What, what is the, I guess, how did you land on that? Like, what is, what's the significance of creativity, the visual arts um, in general, in terms of what you were trying to explore in the research? Why is it that and not uh, accounting or biology or um, I don't know, pick another less interesting thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I think I have to take a step back and talk about first decolonizing identity, which is what the the essay is about. So when I speak about decolonizing identity, what I'm talking about is deconstructing two things, deconstructing social systems and elevating consciousness. Those are the two elements. And I, I see it in three parts. There's the micro, the macro, the meta. So the micro is, for me, repositioning Caribbean identity by rebuilding appropriate visual representation. That is my micro because that's where I'm from. I think if I were from somewhere else, then that's, or for anybody else, if you're from Brazil, then maybe it's rebuilding Brazilian identity. If you're from America, whatever it is. Um, The macro for me is deconstructing identity regardless of your personal circumstance because almost everything we grasp at or grasp to is just a social construct. And then the meta is tapping into consciousness, understanding our relational existence to one another as fundamental to creating more 
inclusive spaces and communities. So today we live in a very like polarized and divisive world. And I think in my rejection to politics earlier, it's, it's so almost morally decrepit these days <laughs> um, that I think that the only way to get, get the moral and the spiritual back into elements of our society that needs, need it the most, like, like, the pol- like the political, like the economic, like the judicial, mm-hmm. um, is to have an element of creativity. And so when I speak of creativity, it's not always pottery and painting things. It's, it's, the, it's the, um, the raising of our consciousness collectively. And in that, there can be creative outputs, such as music, such as writing, such as whatever else you want to do, storytelling. But that's not the only thing. I think those forms are the purest essence of our consciousness, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and usually tend to tell a more authentic story to the human experience. So I, for me, creativity is, that's what it is. And that's why I look at creativity because I think we were missing that element hmm. in our everything. Accounting, sure, we need, we need accounting, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there, there's something fundamental in that, uh, you know, in, in so much as creativity is the generation of something new uh, not in a prescriptive way, but in an organic way. If if the goal is the um, introduction of the spiritual or the moral or you know these um, elements uh, that have been lost, then the it, the, the addition of those things is um, inherently creative. So I guess that I, I follow you there. And the an art, I guess, or visual art as a manifestation makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. No, I was going to say, um, so, and when I focused on visual arts, um, I wasn't limited to doing just visual arts. I I could have done any subject really, but um, I felt like one, well, one in my research, like in my specific MRP, that was the subject that showed me was lacking. and was actually like an area for me to go in and penetrate for a research study, but also, I felt like, particularly in my case study, Decolonized Identity, um, that people tend to need a visual. So it just made sense to start there. Mm. Yeah. And you specifically zeroed in on, on a particular artist, uh, Sheena Rose, who's from Barbados. How did you, how did you pick her? Or what, what about her felt especially fitting for what you were trying to explore? Um, two, two parts to that answer. First, um, well, the assignment that I was doing (laughs) required that I pick an artist. Mm. Um, I chose her because I happen to be familiar with her art already. Um, I actually went to art school with her. Um, I was in the graphic design program. She was in the fine arts program. Um, and I, I own one of her pieces, it's in my office <laughs> on the wall. Um, and I've been meaning to buy more art, but someday. Um, 
so she just fit the criteria of what I was, what I, the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and there was a real, like, I think I didn't quite realize how unique the experience was until I started um, piecing together bits of her art to try and tell the story because I was using different decolonial theories which was decolonization and globalization, the global movement theory. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called, but anyways, it's in, it's in my essay. Um, and she, her pieces of her art really like helped to piece together this story. She has so much more art, but that was those pieces that I spoke about were really, I think, critical. Um, and through writing of her experience, I, I saw my own experience as well. At one, I mean, the, I guess I, I um, stepped on my own point when you were asking the question at the beginning about what, what I made of your um, essay. But I, I mean, the something that I was exploring in the stuff I uh, researched in school was was also globalization and what impact that had specifically on financial wellness in my case. But in general, I'm I'm also just curious about what that does to identity formation, like being from a specific place, identifying your yourself with being from some place, I think is a, a thing, you know, maybe eventually we'll evolve out of that. But um, as it as it stands today, that's a part of how people define themselves. And I, so I really liked that you reference in your essay, this one Gina Rose piece called Cognitive. It's this really huge uh, um, detailed black and white mural that's at the Perez in Miami. I specifically liked it. You know, some of my, my tattoos are just black and white and they're all line drawings and her thing is kind of like that. So I was naturally predisposed to like it. (laughs) Um, And, but, but the thing you're drawing out when you're talking about it is that it divorces um, the, the drawing divorces the Barbadian people in the, um, the artwork from their landscape. Um, as you write, the landscape is rolled up in this colonialized imagination of the Caribbean. There's beautiful beaches and sunshine that draws tourists and their money in. Um, but that is um, problematic or frustrating or um, in the way that it's still defining the Caribbean aesthetic relative to the, the, colonial powers the the places where these people are coming from in order to vacation or whatever you use the word metropoles which i did not know what that meant until i read your essay. metropole and the subterranean what (laughs) i i i'm going to use metropole i don't know what in natural life i will use metropole (laughs) for but i'm going to try and tie it in so um i guess i i i really thought that was an illuminating point of the cost of colonialism for folks who come from the West Indies at the same time, it, it felt like, uh, I don't know, it it was hard to imagine, you know, like having to write off something like the natural beauty of the place you come from to be, to, to give yourself distance from that in order to define yourself on your own terms. So I'm curious about how you think about that, like the necessity of letting go of the Island's natural beauty versus the possibility of reclaiming that um, in some way 
so that you get to take back power over your own identity formation. I think that piece, cognitive, I think one has to juxtapose it with the first piece that I spoke about in the essay, Town, which is about hollow bodies, but on solid lands. And then you go through this journey and you end up solid body, no land. Um, I don't think that it's divorcing oneself from the beauty of the islands because um, that's always going to be there. Well, we don't know if it will always be there. Hopefully it will always be there. Um, I think, I think it is an effort to try and have people see you as a person and not as representative of a place. So tourists come to the Caribbean, not for the people, they come there for the beauty of the landscape. It is, that's what they care about. And they have their vacation and then they go. And interestingly, when I moved abroad, and I'm not the only one, when I speak to other people, the most curious thing they want to know about me is like that I'm from the Caribbean. Again, it goes back to like that landscape or that connection to that land. It's like, you know, that's like this much about me. Like that is such a small portion. Um, and so it's a form of resistance, I think. I think it is a very subtle form of resistance to, we'll use critical theory terms, the imperial gaze. See me as a person, not as uh, your dream vacation or whatever it is. Um, you asked a very elaborate question and I'm forgetting parts of it. So ask me something else so I can keep going. <laughs> well, I guess I just, so what does it mean? Like, let's say you, you have your active resistance against the imperial gaze. Where does that leave your relationship to the land? I think that's to be discovered. Mm. I think it's to be discovered. I don't really know. I just know that um, there's a relationship with tourism that needs to be, I think, uh, redefined. Definitely. Redefined, re, reshaped, whatever. Um, and perhaps part of the reason why I don't really know how to answer that is because as a people, we aren't people that have a connection to land, mm. historically speaking. Um, uh, and it's interesting the word you use, rec reclaiming Reclaim, reclamation, reclama reclamation, reclamation, got it. I got it. Reclamation of the land, because this is one of the differences in indigenous futures and Afrofuturism. Indigenous futures are very, they're very motivated to revive the past, to hold on to their traditions and their cultures, to reclaim their land, rightfully so. Afrofuturism doesn't have that connection and is very much like, this is where we are now, let's create the future. Mm. So maybe part of my lack of uh, clarity on how to give you a definite answer on that is coming from that place as well. I don't know. Mm. 
in a way that kind of uh, it's coherently aligned with the idea of creativity being part of that equation of what, because the future is the, is the thing in question. Yeah. Um, another piece that you reference in the paper is, um, is this performance piece, um, Island and Monster. Um, and it is looking at the relationship between the island, um, similar, similar topics to what we were just talking about. And then the people who choose to leave and then they come back and the monster in the performance is the the people who have left and tried to come back and now have this, they're faced with this very complicated reception um, from the folks who have stayed. Um, so I think my question is, uh, what is it, what does it look like? What does the future look like? Or what's the model of change when the folks who leave come back and at least one of them, Sheena Rose, the artist feels like a monster it just feels, <laughs> it feels hard to imagine what it would look like to reshape, um, you know, an integrated future for a place like Barbados when it's so hard for folks to leave, go through this process that you're describing so eloquently, and then come back and feel like aliens or monsters. Yeah. Um, I think, I think part of part of the challenges and I feel like maybe more people can relate to this than um, just being from the Caribbean. There's something that happens when you leave a small place. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a small place, but because not all the islands are small. Um, there's something that happens where you outgrow certain things, your energy changes your habits change so that you can survive and thrive and so forth. And there is, when you return, I think the energy just doesn't match in the same way. And particularly in smaller places where there's a, a, a set way of doing things, it takes a lot longer for people to want to change um, and to sort of innovate in a way. Um, and I, I almost feel, feel bad to say this, but I think that in those cases, the only time that something really will change collectively is when there's a really hard time, like really like collectively some kind of devastation or something that forces people to create something new. And I speak in my case study about I reference Fanon a lot, and I don't know if were you familiar with him before. Uh, a little, but not not uh, you know not not deeply so at all. Yeah, he is like legend, legend. And anyways, he speaks about affirming national culture and how having to fight or having to to form a resistance is what affirms national culture. What I got out of what I get out of what Fanon speaks on critically, theoretically, is that it is from those struggles that one forms a new identity, one forms uh, a national culture that will operate, have a new operating system. Mm. Um, 
I don't know how else anything might change. Um, certainly when looking at contexture, the last part, which wasn't the best execution that I wanted, but I spoke about, um, you know, the devastation of the pandemic and what it might do. Um, and I think, I think that we're at a point now regionally where we might see certain changes start to come out of desperation. I know that I did not answer your question specifically because I don't remember what your question was. It's okay. (laughs) I'm I'm interested in, I'm interested in all of that. The, I, I, uh, I guess you, you reference in the essay, the idea of the shaking of the soul, a a moment of shaking of the soul, um, or, uh, and I, I think that was, at least in part in reference to some of uh, Fanon's ideas, um, which maybe I I was thinking about more on a personal level, but it sounds like there's application more at a cultural level, a collective level as well. For you at the individual level, um, I I think you you mentioned that in the writing around the idea of, um, you know, people who leave, people who leave the island, go someplace else, uh, see themselves reflected through the eyes of other people. Um, and then I, I was reading it kind of as that um, splitting of identities um, that you have a quote in there from W.B. Du Bois who says um, double consciousness. And so I was curious just on a personal level, like what, what was that process like for you as someone who was leaving? I've not tried to articulate that until this point. It's very interesting that I'm having this conversation, this specific conversation with, with you. Um, but for me, that process uh, uh, lasted several years um, after I moved here. And in some ways, I, would, I think maybe I'm still even now coming out of it. Um, um, but it's the first three years were very, very, very difficult. I would, I, th- I would say, um, having to kind of reorient yourself and um, uh, just having a sort of a conceptual framework collapse, a conceptual framework of whatever you thought was the way things are, to sort of collapse and um, um, having to learn how to read people and read things in a different way. Um, uh, it, it takes some time. And I'm a person that um, I, I do fairly okay in unfamiliar uh, settings. Like I don't crumble and cry, like run off into a corner and cry. I can navigate. But um, part of that is... Um, Sometimes when you're like navigating all the time, you don't stop, you don't pause, then you only catch the after effects mm-hmm. a while later. Um, you are religious. So there is something in Christian, mystic- Christian mysticism that um, you may or may not know the term. You can go look it up on your own. 
Uh, it's called a dark night of the soul. Mm. You're familiar? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely had that mm. for several, several years. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Mm. You can ask me, but. But so I guess there's the, it, it sounds like a process of kind of uh this might not be the right word, but crumbling or deconstruction or, you know, things falling apart. And then I'm assuming there's a process of kind of reassembly in a new, new form. Where are you at with, with that? Um, yes, you're right. It is a deconstructing and a reconstructing. Um, it is, I would say one of the most difficult and painful things the soul can go through. But it's also one of the most beautiful. So if you can get through it, it's like um, a complete rebirth. I feel like I am on the, I am at the point of my rebirth now. Mm. Um, I'm kind of like excited for the future whenever I can get out of this apartment because (laughs) we're in a pandemic. But um, um, it is, it is, I am, I am not the same person that I was before. I think I'm more of myself in, a, in, in the best way possible. Mm. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, people say like, oh, people don't, people don't change or sometimes people change. I think you can change, but become more of yourself in that changing. Mm. Um, you can like drop all of the hangups that you had before. Um, and I think I don't, I don't necessarily want everyone to go through what I went through. Um, but I do think that uh, deconstructing your identity and having to reconstruct it is, would help so many people, like the world in general. So like when I speak about decolonizing identity, it's not just about deconstructing the identity of the oppressed. It's also about deconstructing the identity of those who uphold or benefit from oppression because they too have adopted a belief about themselves that has warped their psyche. Um, and that warped reality creates a cognitive dissonance. It, it, there's no way that it can't. There's no way that something like colonization can occur and all of the atrocities within it that go on within that system to be witnessed and to be engaged with and it could not create a PTSD on other people on the people witnessing it um, even if that's just a lack of empathy so I think one of the largest issues that we have in society as humans today is an inability for self-inquiry um, people cannot handle their emotions, then they cannot control their mind. And um, if we have more of that, if we have more of going into self, we change so many things. We change so much in the world. When you realize certain things, when you've been through what I've been through, and you um, are a little bit more awake in the world, the work that you have to do and the purpose in the world just sort of changes naturally, I think, 
it's very, very hard for me to, um, people ask me, why did I do contexture? I had to, simple. It, it chose me, I did not choose it. Um, so there's a sort of an element of, of allowing the work to come through you. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of my, um, that's one of the, the tensions I felt in the last um, year, specifically in the, in the U.S., with um, the ways that, um, you know, people talk about coming awake to the reality of um, what, what race means in our country. And um, I think that to, since as, as a, as a white person to sincerely engage with that means the type of self inquiry and uh, identity deconstruction that you're describing some version of it different, I'm sure, but, but similar in some ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what percentage of the folks are actually, you know, wrestling with that, but it's not, <laughs> it's not that high. I don't think, <laughs> I think it's a lot easier to like, see, you know, to go to a, on a March or go, um, you know, uh, retweet some stuff or whatever. I don't, I don't understand social media, but um, do I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's easier to kind of, um, that's an easier way of approximating the surface version of it. And I, especially like once companies get their hands on it, you know, that the soul of the actual internal work has died. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and that scares me and makes me sad. Uh, cause I think there's such an opportunity I mean, to your, to your point, um, the elevation of consciousness or being able to, to see things more fully that's available, but it requires a different level of, uh, investment, a different level of engagement than other stuff. You know, the, the version of things I think is more common. So well said, so well said. I had a question about. I mean, basically like reading the whole thing and then knowing you, the whole picture just feels overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like there's uh, at home is obviously complicated. Home being Barbados is obviously complicated. Toronto is obviously another place, but a place in which you experience or have experienced this double consciousness splitting of identity it just left me feeling like where's the safe space? Like what's the place where you feel like you can exhale? Um, that would be in my apartment. <laughs> because, why, because why I'm such a homebody. Yeah, that would be in my, that would be in my home. I've worked very hard to cultivate a certain level of peace in my life. Um, and I'm very particular about who can, you know, just come up and disturb my peace kind of thing. Um, but I'm also, I'm also a very like internally grounded person. Um, I don't get attached to external things. I've never, I've never quite been that 
per, being a person that attached to material things or the external world much. Um, I was much more so than I am now, though, like before my all of my experiences. Um, but now there's 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 very little um, in the material world that drives me. But I do I do also like knowing that you're. I know that you that you love your apartment. You also have a very nice apartment, which probably makes it easier. But that that's your uh, your monastery, your silent retreat. This is my silent retreat. Yeah, I like it. As you know, the thing about your essay that I um, particularly enjoyed above other things was just reading it was reading a piece of you. It was like a personal extension of you as all of our work was. But again, since you're a mystery, it was fun. Uh, There aren't many I statements um, in there directly, but you can kind of see, like I said, some of the, the places where it felt like it was an extension of something you must have experienced directly. Um, And you, I guess, um, describe within the paper kind of the identity formation journey or a conception of an identity formation journey. Somebody's born into the colonized Caribbean world. They're prescribed a specific, a specific set of expectations about who they are, who they'll become. Um, you, you have a specific sentence in there where you say, uh, you know, who, who they, they being in quotes, say you are, they being the, imperial mm-hmm. imperial days um so i was wondering like what your experience of that was who who did they say you are were um i think when i was the way that i can frame that because it's never quite explicit um but the way that i can frame that is is in the experiences that i have had with people uncovering their expectations of me. And there's three things that I find always that just keep that just keep showing up. It may be me as an individual, but I think when I've spoken to other people, they have similar experiences, so there's a little bit of a pattern. Um, uh, the first thing, and this is I've experienced this at home and here, particularly in professional uh, settings, there is like an, there is like this expectation that I, I should be grateful for whatever is given to me. (laughs) You look so uncomfortable. (laughs) Uncomfortable. Just, uh, I don't, I was going to say disgusted for a second, but or put off. Who's doing that? Keep going. Sorry. There's, yeah, that, that comes up a lot. Um, yeah, that I, I should be grateful. Like that's the kind of, I have experienced that in almost every work environment that I've been in. And I mean, this could segue into gender pay gap and racial pay gap and all that stuff, but we won't go down that hole. Um, but I've experienced that, like, I should be grateful for whatever is given to me and, and to expect more or to demand more for myself is, is, you know, like, 
who is she? I get that a lot. Um, the second thing is I find that people expect me to be nice a lot of the time. And I've spoken to other black women, and they get that too. Like, I'm a kind person. I think I'm professional. I think I'm pleasant. I think I'm easy to work with. Um, but I'm under no obligation to be nice to you, particularly when I'm in a tough position. Um, and I have been in uh, situations and work where um, I can give two. So one, several years ago. Oh, my gosh. I have so many. I have so many that are coming up. Okay. So back home, I can definitely think of situations where I was being treated a particular way. And I was like, like the attitude is like, who am I to speak up for myself? I don't know if you've ever met me, but I have a lot to say when things get going. Um, uh, I've, I've also been in situation here not too long ago where I had a coworker who just wasn't quite effective in his role. Um, nice person but I think just couldn't quite grow in the role and his, um, his inefficiency would directly impact me. And um, he would skirt accountability. And I try to address things many times and I'm like a, I'm like, I'm like this, like I'm like level for a long time. And then when I get to a certain point, I will change my tone. <laughs> so make sure that you get it. And I started changing my tone because nobody else wanted to, who should be addressing it should address it. So I started changing my tone. And um, of course, then it became one day, he actually had the audacity to say to me, he was like, you're never nice to me. And I say audacity because it's like, wow. So even as you continue to place me in between a rock and a hard place, even as you have your knee on my neck, you're so entitled that you expect me to be nice to you. And so my point with that is, when I speak up for myself, there is an attitude of, no, you're supposed to, you're just, you're supposed to be nice. And that comes out in several ways, like several ways. Um, and the risk that I have in speaking up to myself is then they'll say, oh, well, she's angry or she has an attitude or something. It's like, no, I don't. I, I just want to leave her at 5 p.m. And you're really fucking up just so you know. Um, the and, if third I, thing, and, if I, and if I did that, it would be good leadership. Yes. That's the unfair part. Yes. Yes. So the first thing is I should be grateful for whatever you give me. The second is um, I'm expected to be nice. 
The third thing is, um, I find this a lot. People tend to expect me to take on their problems. Like, there is something in the psyche of a post-colonial society that includes North America, where um, black women are looked at as buckets for your problems. Like, and, and we're expected to nurture you because historically, that's what we did. <laughs> How, does that love- play out? How does that play out? I'm curious. Well, um, I have found that, and this happens a lot, I think, with um, women, especially, uh, who sort of come toward me. They, they, have the, they project onto me that I'm going to take care of them. Um, and often then they are <clears throat> very um, disturbed when they're rejected by me. And it becomes like, oh, it becomes, um, I'm not like, like, well, not mysterious, but I'm not vulnerable enough or I'm not um, caring enough. I'm actually very caring. I'm deeply emotional. I'm very, very, I'm highly sensitive. Um, and I care for you, but I'm not your caretaker. Um, to, to yes and that, um, there's I, I it is my experience that there's so many people who feel alone i'm not old enough to have like a historical survey of uh how this has progressed but I, it seems to me that there's there's several forces at play that that lead to lots of people these days feeling you know lonely broken and hurting and in need of some sort of support and i am uh I am naturally predisposed to uh, engage with their neediness. Right. And um, so I, I spent a lot of time like in my uh, early and mid twenties, late twenties, engaging in relationships that I was, I did not have the emotional capacity in order to, to provide what the person needed. And I wasn't getting anything out of it. There was no mutuality to the relationship at all. It was just take, take, take. And it's not sustainable. Like you end up, I ended up just feeling depleted, insufficient, and they didn't get what they needed. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my personal growth has been being able to recognize my own set of boundaries. You know, I have a, I have a specific amount of energy I can give yeah. in those settings. And then it has Same to here. stop. But I will say, so I think that's like a thing that's happening in the world in general. And so then you add on this layer of there is something about uh, post-colonial North America in which there's probably some stuff happening that relates to specifically you being a black woman. I don't envy your position (laughs) because as a white guy, I've got my own version of that. And I think it's just because I've let myself for a long time walk into those situations. Yeah. If you take that plus, it's yeah. This this is something I was thinking about earlier today. Um, like, do you ever have the times like when you're thinking about um, 
inclusive design or ethical design or whatever, you know, diversity and inclusion in the workplace or whatever the thing is. And we're talking about all of these, you know, really complicated strategies or, you know, developing new language for things. And sometimes I just wonder, wouldn't it be easier if everybody just got like five years worth of free therapy from a good therapist? Or like we had some way of ensuring that people got a specific experience in the home as a kid growing up to where they were just less hurt and insecure. Like, aren't those, I mean, we're, we're like talking about a lot of stuff that I'm sure is, you know, specific and particular and there's not an excuse for not, that's not an excuse for not learning about uh, history and all sorts of things that are important. But at the end of the day, like sucky people hurt people. <laughs> like if people sucked less, I feel like 90%, that's probably aggressive, but a lot of the problems. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people. This goes back to self-inquiry and knowing yourself and doing the work, the internal work, which a lot of people just, they just don't do. It is actually shocking to me. I've been, I've been realizing recently because I have this thing where, and this is something that I should work on. Like I can be so like consumed in whatever I'm focused on that I forget that like, oh, I, I'm just one person. Like there's a lot of people who don't even, don't even cross paths with this. Like, you know what I mean? Like my world changes. And so I just figure like, oh yeah, well, everyone knows this. They don't. Um, and I just feel like, People need to learn how to do how to do the internal emotional work. I was having the same. I was having a similar conversation, not not uh, with the additional layer of the colonialized world, but um, with a friend earlier this week. And um, I, th- I mean, to be fair, there's probably tons that you and I are not aware of, and there's somebody there's there's many layers of people who have superior elevated self-awareness that I will never achieve in my, in my life. Um, But with that said, I think part of what I find compelling about the, uh, the process that you outline in the essay is like, what if, what if that, what if like the, the deconstruction of identity, the, the, um, self-inquiry the having to like grapple with how the world sees you and how you see yourself and what's true in that and how do you rebuild a version of yourself that you're happy with like what if that is the process that is required to develop these muscles of self-inquiry and that is part of the superpower of um superpower but also like the crime committed against uh people who um, have been oppressed is, is that that was foisted upon you. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the cost that is uh, the, I guess it just strikes me that there's a bunch of people from dominant culture who never have to wrestle with those questions. Right. Because it's just their cultural default and they never have to go through the 
the self-inquiry and so they never build the muscle and then they're just kind of floating along and they miss the chance yeah that's true i think there's a lot of that i think there's a a lot of people in a lot of privileged privileged positions that um don't really know what it is to live to be honest i don't have an answer just a thought yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just making stuff up, but I mean, yeah, I guess that's part, if I, if I had to articulate like what makes me sad mm-hmm. for people that, you know, come from my same cultural experience, it would be that. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. Well, just, I think it it is an illusion. Like the, that, that, that this is normal. Like that I, that, you know, that your identity is what was dictated to you by a specific vein of culture and that there's nothing to unpack and wrestle with. Are you trying to say that, were you trying to say that being white is normal? Yeah. Yeah. But that's the illusion. That's the illusion. So that's, and that is where I was talking about in, where I said that decolonizing identity is not just about deconstructing the identity of the oppressed, but also of those who benefit from the oppression. Because um, one of the biggest things in, I see in people who are trying to do um, like allyship and anti-racism work or whatever is the best of intentions and wanting to do things, but I'm always like, so when does it get to a point where you realize that you too have a constructed race? Because even in doing, even in doing all the wonderful things that you may be trying to do for the benefit of others who don't look like you, if you can't decenter yourself, then you're still missing the point because ultimately the same way my race is constructed, your race was constructed too. And that's what I'm getting at when I said in the meta, we're tapping into, con- is about tapping into consciousness and understanding our relational exper- ex- existence to one another. Is that you couldn't be white if I wasn't black. Literally. Yep. But I feel like we, we being uh, white people, I feel like what gets missed in that for us is a, is a positive articulation of like what, what we were lacking is a part positive articulation of what it would look like to not be white, but to be yourself. You know, like when you say, when, when is it going to get to a point where you're not putting yourself at the center? The, the cost that comes with that is there is no, like the center is, is an illusion. The idea that there is like some normal, that's that's fake and when and when you buy that all the stuff that's weird and unique about you and makes you a snowflake all all the things that your parents said those get lost because like you don't have the chance to define the truly uniquely human version of yourself because so much gets co-opted by what whatever whiteness is supposed to represent and i i just feel like like there's a there's a lot of folks who have written about um you know, an, an anti-racist thing that white people can do is is reconnect themselves with their ethnic heritage. Like I'm I'm not white, I'm I'm Welsh by descent. 
I have no idea what it means to be Welsh. Right. Like, I'm, I could, I, <laughs> or Scottish. I think, I think I'm half Scottish too. So like, why don't I have a kilt? Why don't I like know more stuff about the thing where you throw the giant logs over your shoulder? Right. It's like a Scottish sport. I know nothing about that. Cause I, in my opinion, I'm like, or yeah. In the, in the version of things that I got, it was, I'm just, I'm a white person. Like I'm American. Right. Which, yeah. Is the whole foundation of oppressing people, but also losing a truer version of who I am. Of who you are. Yeah. 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 You're going to be so screwed trying to turn this into a podcast. I know. We need to stop because <laughs> it's just getting worse. <laughs> it is getting worse. I'm going to stop this. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Joe and I. As usual, Inclusive Conversations is presented to you by Manifold and Inclusive Design Consultancy. If you learned anything today, if you just want to connect with us, if you're intrigued at all, please feel free to connect with us on social media at Hello Manifold. And you can find the show notes for this episode on our website, hellomanifold.com.